Welcome to the Summit Up podcast. This is a Summit 7 podcast with me, Jacob Horn, and co-hosted by Jason Sprosser, Senior Cybersecurity Analyst at Summit 7. And uh, surprisingly, there is enough going on in the world of cybersecurity regulation that uh, we felt like there needed to be a place where we talk about things that maybe fell through the cracks of uh, everyone's general awareness. And uh, surprisingly, this first initial episode uh, went quite a bit longer than we originally anticipated. We cover everything from what happened at the September Cyber AB Town Hall and sort of dive deep into some of the numbers and analyses and findings of DIBCAC assessments of DOD contractors recently. Uh, we then turn to look at the very recent joint security alert from CISA, the FBI, and the NSA regarding APT activity in the DIB. We compare and contrast the recommendations of that security alert with some of the findings that DIBCAC has found uh, regarding the level of implementation of 800-171 requirements in the DoD supply chain. Uh, we then turn to talk about what's going on with NIST SP 800-171 Revision 3 and some of the themes that we've seen in the pre-draft comments that were submitted to NIST earlier in September. Uh, and then we wrap up with some perspective comparing and contrasting our recent experiences at two different industry events, Navy Gold Coast in San Diego and the National Cyber Summit in Huntsville, Alabama. Some of the trends that we've seen, common misconceptions that we've had while we were walking around and talking to normal folks that are having to wrestle with the requirements of 800-171 and just try to generally understand all of the moving pieces going on with DVARS regulation, the CMMC program, and so forth. We wrap up talking about a GAO report that just came out regarding the National Nuclear Security Administration and the evaluation of their cybersecurity programs and their seeming lack of oversight and awareness and control over their supply chains and what that means and portends for the future of the CMMC program or programs like CMMC. So we plan on doing this about once a month or so, uh, but we're excited to hear what people think about the format, a slightly more casual approach to various discussion topics related to uh, the defense industrial base, CMMC, underlying requirements, and cybersecurity regulation in general. Um, so without further ado, the Summit Up podcast. Well, first of all, calling it the monthly Hootenanny would, is yeah. a way better name. Uh, but second of all, so we'll just start with the Keiko. So what is the Keiko? Sure. So this is the... What is the acronym? The Keiko? Effectively, the Keiko is the element uh, that has been split from the AB that is responsible for training the assessors, right? Running the certs, developing the curriculum. That's the, It's the training side of what's going on, right? Right. It, it, it basically se uh, seg separates the the duties of the, the AB within maybe like the certification of the individual organizations and then the um, professional certifications that are associated with the people that are going to be performing um, things within the ecosystem. Right. So right. Uh, now when it comes down to it, the Keiko is responsible for 
certifying the assessors and the, the mm-hmm. professionals that are going to fill the ecosystem, wherein the, the AB takes on the role of uh, essentially, I don't know, the, the organizational part of it, right. the, the organizations, the C3PAOs, the, the RPOs, so things like that. The AB is managing the assessment ecosystem. The CACO is managing the training of the assessors, right? They're, right. So uh, first they've split it in order to sort of avoid uh, notions of conflict of interest. And there's a, f- a firewall, according to them, between the two organizations, according to the various ISO standards that the accrediting bodies need to meet in terms of training. It's it's mostly an administrative ISO compliance setup where you have two organizations under the same umbrella that are administratively separate from each other. One is new, effectively, the CACO. They are taking over under Kyle Gingrich, who's been on the AB for a long time now, just responsible for all of the training of the assessors. AB is running and managing the assessment ecosystem. So CACO, C-A-I-C-O, pop quiz time stands for Cybersecurity Assessor and Instructor Certification Organization, the CACO. So that's different from the Cyber AB, although they are still basically attached at the hip, uh, just administrative. It's considered a subsidiary, separate. right? Like it's, it's just uh, a Yeah, I'm not off. sure exactly what the structure is between the two of them, but effectively you've got two heads on uh, the beast now where, you know, it, uh, it's, it's still for all intents and purposes, the same interface, I think for most people in the ecosystem, they've just started to continue to formalize how they're operating. Uh, it's a for, necessary step, right? In order for certifications <laughs> to be handled out for the, the CMMC assessments, this has to take place. And, and that ISO 17,001 yeah. needs to be obtained, right? Yeah. And this is, this is the way that, you know, we've discussed how, how we sort of approach understanding the ecosystem. I think it's valuable for people, right? Still one of the most common misconceptions that we see are people conflating the AB with the DOD and what those two organizations are responsible for, but even more so, I mean, you hear me say this all the time is the understanding of the separation between the CMMC program and the requirements that CMMC is trying to assess and verify. So the requirements come from FAR BASIC, 800-171, 800-172, so on and so forth. Whereas the CMMC program, how you stand up assessors, how you stand up training, how you stand up that whole, all of the programmatic elements that have to happen, that's all a sort of separate domain from the requirements, which I think we're going to get into later when we talk about comments on the upcoming revision to 171 and popular perceptions and things like that. So not anything groundbreaking, but just sort of another, in my view, another incremental step in the formalization of the CMMC program, right? So when you uh, when you start to zoom out and you see all these steps there, they're uh, sort of their clearance through the IRS for their uh, for their IRS designation, right? That finally came through. That was like last year. That was a big question mark for a long time. Whether the Keiko was going to split off or not, that was a question mark for the, a long time. Now that's happened too. So, you know, when you start to add all these things up, it's just a, a continual sort of uh, step in the direction that they claimed they were going to go in all along. Now, tactically in terms of what it's like on the ground 
right? If you're going to try to get training on CMMC, you're effectively under the umbrella of the Keiko in some manner, right? Right. Wanna... The, the, the AB shouldn't have, on paper, shouldn't have any interaction with that whatsoever. Right. Essentially, once it gets down to the level of the individual people that are involved, and that's where the Keiko steps in and the, the, the Cyber AB steps away. Right, yeah. So for, for, for the most part, I don't think people who sign up to take the certified CMMC practitioner exam, uh, the CCP exam, they didn't consult us on the acronym, or the CCA exam to be a lead assessor for CMMC. I don't think people that sign up for those exams are going to really care that it's the Keiko or the AB or not, unless it's an exam question, but it's, it's pretty transparent for people who are actually interacting with it. So having been a provisional assessor, provisional instructor, uh, I was part of the group of people who took the CCP beta exam, which I think people, maybe, uh, it was interesting, right? So, um, it was, it was clearly a beta, a, a form of the exam because, it was extremely long. Um, and I, the way that I would describe it is it felt like two different exams sort of pushed together, right? So <clears throat> it's very close to the material. I think all the material that I saw, especially through uh, some of the organizations that I had taught with before, um, you know, it's all the DOD is the DOD has put out training programs before, right? It's part of the reason why it took so long. They're, they're pretty decent at writing what they want people to know and then creating training to it. Um, right. so for the most part, I felt like the exam was fine. There were definitely some questions in there that need to be tweaked, but it's hard to know because a significant portion of the test of the questions on a beta exam are designed to be taken out anyways. For the most part, I found it to be, um, I found it to have a lot of potential because just like we talk about 800-171 and 853 being objectively better standards because they have a corresponding set of verification procedures in 853A and 800-171A, right? right? If you compare mm -hmm. those to other popular frameworks, there's a very strong case to be made that they are better, quote unquote, because they are verifiable, right? All of the verification procedures are documented for you. They're not locked away in some assessor's head right? Or something that you just sort of guess at, and move, move your hands around and say, oh, we've implemented everything, right? It's not, it's not magic. It's actually a verification procedure. Now, the problem is, <clears throat> for the most part, NIST controls and their verification procedures are written in Greek, right? So they're not very approachable, but the raw material is there. And this exam, uh, you know, some part of it is, is focused on understanding the relationship between the verification procedures in the CMMC assessment guide and the controls as written uh, in the CMMC model, right? And so in that yes. sense, it's very unique because there is not a lot of training out there on the relationship between controls and their verification procedures or why that's important or what the value is. So not only does the training around the CMMC program cover those, I mean, this is something I've talked about on podcasts and industry events I'm like we this is how summit seven basically approaches you know our our services is through the shared responsibility matrix as broken down by known verification procedures so the fact that the exam at least portion of it is heavily oriented around that same perspective 
it keeps everybody on the same page, right? Which I think is very valuable. And even though it's a beta and all that stuff. Now like for that, you, right? As somebody that has taught classes for people that are looking to take this exam <clears throat> and for you that has obviously seen, I guess the, the, the body of work or the body of knowledge that needs to be absorbed in order to take the exam. Do you feel as though there were things that you were caught off guard by, you know, like that, where mm. did we cover this or? No, no, I don't think so. There wasn't that it was pretty, it felt like uh, it felt pretty, pretty tight, right? It was pretty oriented around all the material, but there's a lot of material, right? And it's a big exam. Uh, it's, it's difficult because I'm very familiar with the material, right? And you sort of been looking at it. However, trying to put my hat on for somebody who hasn't seen the material before they're going through the training, the exam as it currently exists in beta, not that far off in left field, sort of trimming and cutting in my mind, what I thought was probably the elements that were beta and which weren't, um, any exam out there that gets people to be more familiar with the importance of verification procedures, how they relate to the controls, how to understand them, how to think about them in specific situations, I think is a net positive. Um, so even though there's things like the AB is splitting from the Keiko and blah, 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 uh, at its core fundamental level, I think the CCP exam uh, is good and has a ton of potential. And I'm definitely excited to see what it turns into after it's out of the beta. I'm very interested to see what happens with the initial run of results, because since it's a beta, they have to have a, um, <clears throat> oh, geez, what is the, what is the term? A, um, I can't remember the, 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 the name of the position. It's like an, uh, it's like somebody who studies test metrics specifically. So they basically go hmm. through and they will analyze, you know, who, which questions did everybody miss? Which questions did everybody get right? And they have to sort of pick apart, uh, the value of the individual questions, but Keiko split from the AB, the beta exam came out. I think it's pretty good. I think there's a lot of potential there. So something to look for as they start to um, roll out the official exam. And I believe that they said in the town hall that they were going to have the CCA training material out on the street here. Is uh, it a graphologist? Uh, no, I can't remember. We'll, we'll, we'll have That's to look it up and add the Wikipedia page. I can't believe I'm forgetting the name. We'll have to put it in the show notes, but. So it, the good it, thing it, about the feedback that you provided and, you know, having people like, let's just say our subsidiary graphologists coming in and, and <laughs> reviewing, <laughs> reviewing the results of, of what people's experience was with the test. And then obviously the feedback from the results, given that the, um, subset of people that were provisioned to take this test. Uh, fall under the category of people that have pretty much taught it, right? That that have gone through the class, that have... Yeah, either... I mean, if you have people, theoretically, if the only people who took the beta exam are provisional assessors, provisional instructors, and then a bunch of people miss the questions, then there's probably a problem with the question, right? Probably, I don't know, I'm not a graphologist, is <laughs> whatever, the, whatever the title of that job is, I apologize to professionals who do this for a living, right? Uh, I don't know how exactly that process works. However, I think the irony here is that I'm pretty sure that there is more uh, data and feedback on the viability of questions about the controls than there actually was 
with the controls as deployed into industry directly. Right? Are you, you're not uh, interested in the CCG course, the certified <laughs> CMMC graphologist? The, you know, is that, I'm sure that would be, coming, I mean, if they're soon. listening, I would not be surprised if they offer that as well. Um, well, what they did say in the town hall was that, and, and Kyle, you know, d dove into this a little bit more is that they are going to take the feedback from the people in the ecosystem that have taken the test thus far. They're going to take the results. They're going to analyze it with the board of managers, which are the people that control or that have say within what happens within the Keiko and, and, and try to make improvements, not only to the experience of the test itself, but in addition to that feedback to Scantron, who is the vendor providing the test for the actual end test experience. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes and what kind of developments come off of that. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, like you had mentioned previously, is that it, although we're taking steps in the right direction, it may not be at the pace that we, we thought the lightning speed it was going to, but it is at the pace of the government, I feel like. And, and for that, I, I think that we're kind of right on schedule. Um, at least there's positive traction being made. And we're making baby steps to the bus. Well, that's always that's that's always one of those things, right, where it's first of all, right. D developing exams, developing curricula, developing testing materials, teaching materials takes a phenomenal amount of work. I think people always underestimate how much effort it takes to make that stuff. I mean, we can we can talk to Joy, right, who uh, is our our superstar VP here at Summit Seven now about how much effort and time it takes to create materials for a class. I mean, it's a lot of work. I think people think that it's more straightforward than it actually is but in my in my background in teaching like when i taught at ucla and things like that yeah it was like the most work i ever did was trying to put a class together and put all and you had together. a set curriculum like where you want oh, yeah. to achieve right with these ccps they're developing curriculum that basically is established off an ever-changing uh, model standard framework program right and, and you and have so to and you have to kick, like you said kick it over to the dod and wait and then get it back and then kick it back over and wait so that that's cycle right there yeah like your right. stuff's already out of date and you're on revision 16 yeah. by the time it, it really comes back yeah so speaking of the dod right and and basically dod performed assessments Another one of the hot topics that I'm really excited to talk about is the um, the visit of our, our our good boy, our good friend, Mr. Nick Del Rosa um, from DCMA, DIPCAC, and during the town hall, right? And some of the things that he covered and some of the stuff that he jumped into. And I really wanted to take a minute just for us to touch on that and, and see how far we go down the rabbit hole with this, because I think there's some real, real spicy meatballs for you to dig into when we get into this. Uh, most importantly, starting with like, uh, well, obviously, Jacob, why don't you tell us what DibCAC is? All right. So <laughs> DibCAC, another of these long Besides acronyms. So, so we went Keiko to DibCAC, right? So DibCAC is a element within DCMA, Defense Contract Management Agency. DibCAC is the Defense Industrial-Based Cyber Assessment Center? Cell? Center? I probably missed that, that test question. I think it's center. Yeah. Defense Industrial Base Cyber Assessment Center. Effectively a team under DCMA who's responsible for contract enforcement that's, that is specifically focused on evaluating contractor compliance with NIST SP 800-171 and the overall language of DFARS 7012, the contract clause that specifies you need to implement 800-171 if you have CUI 
from the DOD. So DIBCAC are the folks that are running direct assessments from the DOD directly. The reason why the DOD decided to move to a program like CMMC was specifically to scale their assessment capability because they can't, they've said this many, many times over many, many years, they can't find enough people and pay people enough to organically scale their assessment capability. So they have to come up with another solution. And that's how we, that's basically how we got to CMMC, effectively having third party private organizations assess on behalf of the DOD through this rigorous training and certification and accreditation program, right? So just sort of another I illustration of the point that all the requirements are external to the DOD needing to stand up this program to bolster their organic assessment capability. Now, people are probably most familiar with DIBCAC because of something known as the DOD assessment methodology, another acronym, the DODAM, right? And so when the interim rule came out in 2020, uh, that was the one that got everybody's attention. It effectively did two things. It created two assessment mechanisms. It created the DODAM, the DOD assessment methodology, and it created CMMC, the CMMC assessment methodology. Same requirements, two different forms of assessment, one organic to the DOD, one external to the DOD. Within the DODAM assessment, this would be things like the DFAR 7019 clause and the DFAR 7020 clause. This is the one that says you have to do your self-assessment, do your goofy little calculations and, ups and upload your score to SPRS, right? So another SPRS acronym. score, We're just another one, today. yeah, another acronym. But all of that scoring, SPRS, all of that stuff, that's on the DIBCAC uh, DODAM side of the 2020 rule. All of the level one, two, three, CMMC, ABCD stuff is on the CMMC side of the 2020 rule. Both setups still assessing 800-171 requirements, far basic requirements, all that stuff. So two different programs, same, you know, sort of universal set of requirements underneath of them. So in the lead up to, yeah, so in the lead up to CMMC, uh, DIBCAC has been basically going through this process of low, medium, and high assessments. Low and those are the assessments. three levels of the assessments. That That's right, are... yeah. So under, under the DOD assessment methodology, three levels of assessment, low, medium, and high. Low being your self-assessment, you calculate the score, you upload the score to SPRS. The medium assessment being DIBCAC gives you a phone call and you send them your SSP, your system security plan, that documents how you have implemented everything and gives you the basis for calculating your score. And then they upload the score that they think with a medium level of confidence because they're not actually there to figure out if it's true. They're just reading what's in your SSP. Right, the, right. The DIBCAC high assessment being they actually show up and do an on-site assessment. So low, medium, high under the DOD assessment methodology driven by DIBCAC, one half of the 2020 interim rule. All right. And then so part of Nick's presentation during the, the town hall, he we started to dig into some numbers that were associated with these particular assessments that they found 
in a sample size, right? And so um, for me to get it straight before we dig into those numbers, just to break it down just a little bit is the DIPCAC low assessments are what you as an organization think your implementation of the NIST 800-171 standard is, right? And then Yeah, a low assessment is your self-assessment. Correct. And then the medium is where they come in. And instead of you saying that we're doing this, you're showing them on paper, basically, how you're doing this. And they're like, yeah, we agree based on the way that you represent it on paper, correct? Yeah, basically, they're not even coming in. You're literally just sending them or somehow showing them your SSP. Email on Monday, SSP by Friday. Exactly. They call you on Monday. They go, hey, we see that you have a score uploaded in SPRS. Good job. Please send us your documentation that backs up what the basis for that number is. And then they'll review it and they'll enter a score with their medium confidence. If they want a high confidence score, they have to show up under a high assessment and conduct an actual on-site, in-person, um, you know, assessment of your control environment. And that would be essentially the only point in time where you're actually told that you have to prove it, physically prove it or demonstrate at some point in time by DIPCAC, right? So, well, here's the thing, right? It's 800-171 requirements. And the only way to verify officially, right? The only way to verify whether those requirements have been implemented is by following the procedures in 800-171A. So in theory, if you were to conduct a self-assessment, if DIBCAC were to conduct an assessment of your documentation, if DIBCAC were to conduct an in-person high confidence assessment, the exact same questions are going to be asked in all three assessment levels, right? All of the 320 questions in 800-171A. Now, as we'll see when we get into the numbers, uh, most people don't do that, right? And as a result, most people dramatically overinflate their SPRS score because they give themselves credit for requirements when they haven't gone through the full verification procedure and you only get the points, right? The 1.3.5 point per requirement. That's a, a DOD assistant methodology thing. You only get those points for a control that's fully implemented. A control is only fully implemented if you've met all of the steps of its corresponding verification procedure, which means if you didn't use 171A, which most people don't, then you probably got your score wrong. And when DIBCAC shows up to do a medium or a high, they're probably going to find a discrepancy between what they calculate your score to be and what you calculated your score to be. Which is exactly what happened when... Right. So, so Nick joins... And Nick has this conversation and, and we start getting slide after slide after slide after slide. That was almost like a massacre parade, right? That's basically saying that this, <laughs> it, that's what it was. It was death to self-assessment, right? Or self-attestation. And, and the reason being is because what was noticed is that, um, so what they did was, is we were given results from a, a sample size of DIPCAC assessments. And the sample size was between March of 21 and July of 22, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. And they took like uh, basically the sample of all medium assessments that were conducted then and compared medium, it to, medium assessments being documentation review. Correct. Right. So saying, saying with that being said, what was noticed are some of the things that majorly stand out to me, right? First and foremost, uh, 156 different instances where the score that was represented or what the organization thought of their own cybersecurity posture compared to NIST 800-171 
dropped by at least 100 points or more right so uh, oh man that's like <laughs> oh man all right like so tell me that this isn't going as you wanted it to go but without so, telling me that this, but this isn't is going the, according this is to plan, the thing right? right is there's clearly a problem underlying that gap in the numbers because if you calculated your score by 171a and you have the evidence for which you based those determinations on, right? Whether it's implemented or not, what you used to calculate your score is what you would provide to DibCAC, right? Whether it's a medium right. or whether they show up in person. That means that people aren't calculating their score correctly, right? Which is we know, as we well know, the, the main reason they're not doing that is because they don't understand the relationship between 171 and 171A or how to use the procedures in 171A. I mean, to this day, years into this process, it is still a revelation to most people that 171A even exists. I mean, we'll get to this when we talk about the comments on 171 Rev 3, but it's clearly a problem. One of the and we'll have the uh, the the link to the town hall um, in the show notes with the slides and everything. But like you were saying, the jump out, uh, the one that jumped out to me wasn't just the discrepancy between the average score of the basics and then the average score of the medium assessments, which is over 100 points in the wrong direction. But that on their list here of um, several medium assessments compared to the basic assessments, none of the scores were the same. Like, it's not right. just that the average scores were dramatically different between a self-assessment and a, and a DibCAC medium assessment. It's that not a single one of them was even close to being the same when DibCAC simply reviewed the documentation. And so the, 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 ex the extrapolation here is that the same questions that are being asked in 171A are the same questions that are being asked in a CMMC assessment. If you read the CMMC assessment guide, literally every line in there says taken from 171A, taken from 171A, because CMMC is a program that assesses the requirements in 171, and the only way to verify 171 implementation is with 171A. So if people think that they're just going to stroll in to a CMMC assessment and pass, uh, there has been no company in in the numbers here listed by dibcac that got their pre-self-assessment anywhere close to right like no not one actually the, the numbers show right the spr submissions around this span of time that was assessed the sprs basic submissions for the self-attestations were at a 56. what do you think what do you just wrap yourself get get prepare yourself Okay, what do you think was the cumulative or the average of all of those scores, the average of all the scores when they were validated through the medium assessment mechanism? So just to clarify, maximum score here is 110. The minimum score is negative 319? 203, right? 203, 203, yeah. So you've got a huge range. It's at, it's a it's a range of numbers that doesn't, it's, it seems very odd because... Some of the requirements are worth five points. Some of them are worth three points. Some of them are worth one point, blah, 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 blah. So when we talk about this range of scores, the maximum score you can get with everything fully implemented is a 110, a perfect score. We have everything implemented or covered 
accordingly. You're right. saying that the average self-assessment score was what? A 56. A so 56. St still 54 points off of a perfect score. Right, but way above the minimum of 203 if you have nothing implemented whatsoever. Right. A negative 203. And you're saying, and the question is what? The question is, so now, out of that sample they took and they did an average of the medium, mm -hmm. so the, the same organizations, but being scrutinized to the medium mechanism, the medium yeah. assessment mechanisms. What do you think that that average score is? Uh, zero. I'll go with zero. That's that would be an improvement. Negative fifty-seven point two five. Okay, this is the hundred point gap. That you the hundred to hundred and twelve point gap. But even in the averages that come out, so it's across the board. There may be outliers here and there. And talking about that sample size that that Nick got into, it was sixteen companies that they took and they provided the information on screen. Out of those sixteen contractors, these were all contractors that got medium level assessments. So first and foremost, my question to you is: is that right now an organization receiving a medium level DIPCAC assessment? Right? What do you think? Do you think it's the landscapers? Do you think it's the people that just make I don't know toilet paper runs? Do you what, what, do you think it's like those small one offs that's constantly thrown out from pundits and whatever it may be, or do you actually think it's people with we substantial? Keep, we stake keep using in this. this we keep using this. Like this talking point keeps coming up in the broader discourse where they're like, "What about the landscapers?" and like, "What about the gas station on base or whatever?" I'm like. I don't think that's who we're talking about here, right? So for, first of all, the DIBCAC high assessments, we'll put this link in the show notes as well. Uh, the DIBCAC high assessments, those are not a random lottery, right? We know this after we talked to Stacey uh, Boschanik at CS2DC in July, right? The DOD knows which programs it is particularly interested in. It doesn't have very good visibility in what the supply chain looks like below those programs, which is why they're casting such a wide net in general. But they're they're pretty sure what their immediate centers of gravity are. And so, surprise, surprise, limited assessment resources organic to DOD. They wanted to get a picture of what was going on. And all of a sudden, everybody that you talk to who got a DIBCAC high assessment is a pretty high-speed company, right? They're, they're doing pretty cool stuff, some pretty advanced stuff regardless of what it is. But then you talk to most companies that have gone through this process and they're putting parts on weapon systems. They're not trimming the hedges, right? They're, they're, making, they're making software and or engineering design specs for weapons systems. They're not putting a roof on a building somewhere. But even then, even then, a huge amount of information that DOD is concerned about goes to construction companies, right? And right. very little of the conversation around CMMC is being dominated by probably the construction sector, which is, I would say, a majority of where DOD is going to be concerned with verifying what's going on. Because, I mean, they have they have the information about facilities. Right. I mean, it's just it's such a it's such a can of worms. But that 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 disparity, I think, is the real takeaway here is that. So this, you're saying that essentially that the companies that probably are a part of this sample size that was provided to us during the town hall are the companies that may not necessarily be completely 100% whiz bang companies. Right. But they may be the companies that have a, a more influential stake in this entire process. I just, right? it's just, it's such a, it's such a, 
almost arbitrary way of approaching the problem, right? Because most of the companies that bring up the landscaper problem are not landscapers. I'm right. like, I, I don't understand. You're a machine shop, right? You're making parts, right? You're making software. You're doing things that are clearly at least adjacent to things that the DOD cares about a whole lot. Or a uh, piece of the puzzle, right? And and so, I mean, I, I understand that that edge case. I mean, this is the story of CMMC, if nothing else, will be the story of edge cases. But um, this is the same idea. This is the same problem when they brought up the idea of bifurcating CUI, and that would allow some companies to self-assess against 800-171 and some companies that would have to get an external third party uh, certification under CMMC. What we know is that the dynamic in the supply chain doesn't support that idea because the majority of the DIB supply chain works underneath the large system integrators, the mega primes, right? The, the Lockheeds and the Raytheons and the Northrop's of the world. And DOD doesn't have a mechanism for preventing those companies from just requiring people to have level two. This is another thing that we asked Stacey when we were at CS2 in July. We said, you hear this all the time, right? Some machine shop, some DIB supplier will say, my customer, blah, 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 Mega Prime is asking me to be CMMC level two, and they can't tell me if I have CUI or not. Somebody do something about this. And the DOD's response is they can only hope that the primes don't do that because you're in a private agreement between your business and that business. The DOD doesn't have privity over that contract. And, and so there's no mechanisms in place now that can control that. No, so uh, other than market forces, down. other than market forces, which is a, a difficult spot to be in if you're on the wrong side of market forces, because I don't know about anybody else, but I don't I can't think of a single time where the primes would have passed an opportunity to increase their rates to the DOD. DOD's position is effectively, well, they're not going to ask everybody to be CMMC level two because it's going to make their rates go up and be not competitive. Okay, uh, that's not exactly enough for me to like bet my business that anyone's going to do anything to try to prevent everybody from from raising uh, the requirements just as sort of like a high watermark on everybody being CMMC level two. However, however, sort of getting back to this thing about the DIBCAC numbers in the town hall, a common sentiment, and we'll talk about this when we talk about some of the industry events that we went to, common sentiment is that CMMC's going away or CMMC's changing or they're going to roll it back or they're going to adjust it or they're going to do that. When you look at the numbers gathered by DOD's own assessors and you look at the fact that all of the self-assessments are completely wrong and these are probably the companies that DIBCAC and DOD cares about the most, what would make you think that the DOD is going to say, you know what, self-assessment's probably fine. All of I, the self-assessment numbers are wrong. They are. Seven out, seven out of the 16 from the contract, from the, from the sample size of contractors, seven out of 16 had scores that they self-reported as 50 plus that turned into negative values. One contractor, even in this study, one contractor submitted a self-assessed score of a perfect 110. I wish I was making this up. I'm not. Submitted a perfect self-assessed score of a 110, and their medium assessment was a negative 203, the worst possible, right? 
And and so that's not even saying that they can't demonstrate it. They can't even write how they did it, but they were able to submit the self attest. Well, and this is I mean this is a hard problem, right? Because I mean we can do this over and over and over again. You can pick you can pick industry reports and IG reports from before CMMC was a thing. You can pick DIBCAC numbers and reports after CMMC has been a thing, and it's the same results over and over again. Self assessments don't work. They don't work. Right. Period. They don't work. If the government or anybody wants assurances over what somebody is doing with their data, an insurance company wants assurances before they give you a policy. The government wants assurances before they give you your data. Some organization wants assurances before they give privacy regulated data to you. Right. You have to have a verification of what's going on. Now, there's probably lots of room for efficiency and automation and Lots of cool, awesome ways of innovating in the space. But the fundamental issue is we don't have assurance over what's going on in the supply chain. And literally every time the DOD gets any information about comparing <laughs> verification as clunky and slow as it is to self-assessment, self-assessment just gets smacked in the face. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And the numbers clearly show that. And I, I wish that we could spend the entire the entirety of this this uh podcast of this episode talking about like the disparities between what people think that they're actually doing and what's actually showing and and the results and what the results are is that data is still walking out the door faster than we can get it in the door at this point well you know and i think just to to boil it down right the same questions that dibcac asked you in a high assessment are the same questions that they ask in a medium assessment are the same questions that you get asked in the cmmc assessment are the same questions that you're supposed to ask in a self-assessment. It's the same thing that we tell everybody every time they listen is use 171A slash the CMMC assessment guide, period. Whether you're assessing yourself, whether you're assessing a vendor, whether you're assessing a solution that's making claims about helping you with your compliance, it all starts and ends with the questions in 171A. And we know people aren't doing that because we got the numbers from DIBCAC. The, now, I think maybe transitioning into this joint security uh, alert that went out, the Speaking thing that of messages that keep coming. That right. To. So the thing that uh, <clears throat> that that Nick pointed out on one of his slides was the number one and number two most common controls that are not implemented under 171 are this is no surprise. FIPS validated cryptography, the thing that everyone hates and multi-factor authentication. Right. I mean, you you couldn't have two different two different requirements that are so polarizing where MFA universally recommended as the number one thing that you should probably be doing everywhere all the time. And FIPS validated cryptography, the number one thing that people hate the most ever about 800-171 and CMC. And those are the two things that Nick called out as of all the things that are implemented that almost everybody misses. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't disagree with you at all. It's actually, when you see these CISA alerts come out, it, what these CISA alerts are telling us is that we have, with our professionals, uh, observed actions and, and tactics that, that come from the adversaries that need to you need to pay attention to in order to protect your organization, right? You need to protect your business, and this is the way that you can do it. And these advisories are giving the insight, that threat intelligence that you're supposed to be seeking as a business, especially a dip contractor. And 
it's giving these continuous instructions, continuous instructions. And it's almost repetitive at this point. Multi-factor authentication, FIPS validated encryption. I'm almost certain that the, this uh, the, this um, CSA includes uh, segmenting of networks. Um, well, awareness okay, yeah. and training, so, maybe, you know, backups. Yeah. So what we're talking you. about, yeah, what we're talking about is yesterday at the time of this recording, uh, CISA, FBI, NSA released and yet another joint security advisory that is titled Impacket, which is the, the tool that was used in the in the incident, Impacket and Exfiltration Tool used to steal sensitive information from defense industrial base organization, right? I mean, cover up the date on this report and you could have it come out anytime in the last 10 years, right? And the number one recommendation on the first page is enforce MFA. And the number one control that people don't have implemented throughout all of these findings over the years is freaking MFA, man. And MFA. so it's, you're just like, okay, Regardless of regardless of the practical reasons why it is difficult for people to implement MFA and get the budget and all those other reasons, right? When you put yourself in the shoes of a regulator who is looking at the long-term story of what's going on, every time a joint security advisory comes out, they recommend you turn on MFA, among many other sort of fundamental things, but that one specifically. Every time a control framework gets specified under the guise of the DOD or another agency or whatever it happens to be, one of the main things that's included is turn on MFA. And when we don't show up to verify that people are doing what they're saying they're doing, we know that they don't implement MFA, right? If there's, if, a, there's a reason you're constantly being told to do these things because there's there's trends or there's things that are showing that either these are the most vulnerable areas um, or that verification that has been done on the organizations that are in the target audience of this entire process aren't doing these things, right? And it's and just, so, it's just, I mean, this is, it gets to the point, like you said, where it's repetitive, it is repetitive at this point, where, I mean, yeah. I would, we should probably go back and look at these, uh, these cybersecurity advice, uh, alerts that have gone out, just cover up the title, but look at the recommendations and be like, which event was this? Like, so, which, which major event caused these recommendations and mitigations to come out? Cause I'll bet what, you just off the top of my head, I'll bet you they're all the same. It, it, it's, it's, I can tell you as somebody that has analyzed those, um, and we have talked about this and I have spoke about this publicly multiple times, it it is almost exhausting, repetitive. It, it, it's um, to the point where they are doing this ad nauseum and so much so that I, I nerded out a little bit and you might like this. I, I, I went on a little nerd bender and I, I want you to just adventure with me for a second, right? So... What we know is that security measures and things like that are recommended by the to the organizations by CISA in order to prevent this. So excluding any CMMC uh, DFARS requirements or anything like that, let's just take and see the recommendations of the, the CISA joint service, the, the, the joint advisories. Let's take these recommendations and then compare them against the NIST 800-171 framework controls within it. And what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit of background as to if I were an organization and over the, since 2017, for the most part, 
these advisories have been coming on a, a regular reoccurring basis, right? And coming with this sort of message. So since 2017, which is a key year for this entire dib cybersecurity program, obviously, right? It's um, a key year because that's when everybody, that's when the deadline to implement 171 kicked in. Right. So right. since then, if, if you were to follow the letter of the law or the letter of these advisories to the T and implemented all of the mitigation recommendations that CISA tells you helps protect you from your adversaries as a DIB organization. What do you think, okay? What do you think your score would be based uh, against the NIST 800 framework? So what you're saying, the question is, if I were to take all of the recommended mitigations from all mm -hmm. of the joint security alerts since 2017, mm -hmm. And I and I just implemented what they recommended to me. What level of implementation would I have against eight hundred one seventy one? Correct. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with seventy five percent. That that's a pretty good guess. That is a pretty good guess. Truthfully, it's eighty two percent overall, right? With a hundred percent impact on systems and information. Integrity. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, oh. wait, wait. Stop the presses. You're yeah. gonna sit here and have the audacity to tell me that if I had implemented eight hundred one seventy one, it would have some sort of tangible effect on actual real world security recommendations from yeah. big yeah. from big boy real world security agencies about big boy real world security incidents i thought i thought that 800171 was a farce i thought 800171 and cmmc were a scam and that this isn't real security you're telling me that if i only did what was recommended in these joint security advisories it would add up to almost everything that is in 800171 currently uh, yeah, almost everything. 256. Well, out of we better tell everybody points. on LinkedIn about this because uh, that is not what a lot of people think about 800. You know, this is not yep. what a lot of people think about 800 which is just insane to me because when, okay, for, for, I have it pulled up right here. There were six high level mitigations listed in this most recent joint security alert, right? Right. And they were things that were, let me read them off here. Segment networks based on function. Hmm. Does that sound like something that is in 800-171, like basic network segmentation? I mean, the generic guidance is split up your networks through VLANs at an absolute minimum based off Publicly what is accessible happening. accessible systems. Don't associate them with the CUI systems, right? Second one is manage vulnerabilities and manage configurations. Uh, eerily similar to the exact words that are in 171. Search for anomalous behavior. Restrict and secure the use of remote admin tools. Implement a mandatory access control model and audit account usage. Like, okay, is it is it the is it the fact that like this they're is all in cahoots? It's in Coke. Cahoots. It's Coke versus Pepsi here. Like what? There's these are the same things. They are the same things. And I, I love that number that you brought up because now now 
Let's just say that we chopped off the part of 800-171 that isn't covered by uh, by these recommendations. And I assume that what's not covered is probably like the policy, the procedures, the documentation, because they're not going to write a they're not going to write a technical report and say, make sure you have a policy. It's important from an insurance perspective, not necessarily important from a threat intel perspective. So let's just say that, and this is not a thing, but let's just say that all the requirements in 171 reflect exactly what's in the CISA documentation, right? Right. And CMMC is a program that only assesses the recommendation in the body of CISA alerts over the last few years. And then go back to Nick's numbers. Are the self-assessment numbers any different or are people still going to dramatically overestimate their compliance regardless of where the requirements are coming from. So it's funny you say this because Nick provided us with 10 other than satisfied controls, the 10 most troublesome controls. And I want it. I just want you to guess you're, you're never going to get this right. Where do you think, where do you think you could find all 10 of those controls? Uh, come on, you can do this. So I the ten. So the ten. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I know. So, you so can the do question this. is, I'm going to rephrase the question like I'm in a beauty pageant to make sure I have time to think <laughs> through the answer. So, uh, as a as a wrong. as a contestant of many many beauty pageants, this is a pro a pro tip for everybody. So the question is, Nick Del Rosso, director of DibCAC, got on the AB town hall and listed right. off after all of their medium assessments the top 10 controls that people have failed to implement in 800-171. Or other and than satisfied. They're right? just, so they're not, they're not fully yeah. implemented. Right. And right. you're saying how many of those top 10 missing controls are represented by the recommendations in CISA's joint security alerts? 100%. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to say that 100% of the top 10 missing controls are represented in the CISA alerts. Congratulations. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. Amazing. Right. Yes. So, so you can hate on, oh my God. So you can hate on CMMC, right? You can think whatever you want to think about the program. You can hate on 171, right? I am, I am at the front of that line, right? There are a lot of things about 171 that need to be fixed. However, right? No one has implemented these 10 controls when DibCAC shows up at your door, and those are the 10 controls that CISA has traced a direct line to, to real world activity. So, I mean, this reminds me a lot, listen, right? Uh, I was in the Navy for a long time, and it was always the folks who were, I will say, not the best performers on their PT tests, who had a lot of opinions about better ways of working out, I'll say, right? And you're like, hey, man, uh, you can't do the push-ups and the sit-ups. What are you talking about right now? Like, you got to do the blocking and tackling before we can come up with some really crazy plays on what's going on. That is such an insane comparison. I mean, I hope that, you know, this will probably be something that we could put out as a blog or something as that that comparison. But, man, it's... So <laughs> One other thing I want to throw in there about this joint, uh, th this uh, cybersecurity advisory that was just issued yesterday, yesterday, right? This is the first time that I've seen these advisories go into more granular detail as to what needs to happen. So now there's like 
um, maintain a man, uh, an access control me mechanisms, right, is, is basically what they're asking you to do. But now we're getting in more to those conditional access and risky sign-on principles, like obviously the, you know, um, the part of the zero trust principle, uh, zero trust yeah. strategy and, and whatever it may be. This is the first time that I've seen the mitigation recommendations actually dig deeper into that level of what needs to happen. Also, I, I think that it's important to po point out if you were an organization and you followed the CISA advisories to the T, you actually would be in a better position than actually implementing CMMC. And this is, hear me out on this, because CISA thinks that disaster recovery and business continuity are important aspects. Because with every single one of these, the one stat that we can't track in this control breakdown of NIST 800-171 is backups, disaster recovery. Well, you know, we'll talk about this when we get into um, when we get into <clears throat> the comments that are on the, the upcoming revision to 171 Rev 3. But it's a good point where you're saying there are, I mean, this is fundamentally, right? And I mean, I've talked about this before. CMMC, judging CMMC on against uh, verification of a holistic program is a is a fool's errand because CMMC is a program that assesses pre-existing requirements and the requirements in 171 as much as much uh, wonderful overlap as you have have pointed out here right between the recommendations in 171 and things that are being recommended by real world agencies viewing real world activity in the dib right. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, 171 is just designed to be very narrowly focused on data confidentiality in order to give assurance to the data owner, the government, while you are a data steward, the contractor. Now, to be fair, right, there are all these other elements of a well-rounded program that aren't included in 171 that are included in the CISA recommendations. Well, you said 83 or 85% of the recommendations map to what's in 171 that extra 80, 82 yeah the the extra overhead is understandable right we could probably dive into those numbers a little later however this sort of leads into our next topic about the upcoming revision to 800 171 right the the fundamental concept here being if 800 171 is the requirements and CMMC is the program that assesses those requirements, then as goes 800-171, so goes CMMC, right? However 171 changes, CMMC just verifies what's going on. The big kerfluffle that happened was in 2020 when CMMC 1.0 came out, even though the CMMC, the CMMC model that existed when the rule was written wasn't 1.0, it was 1.02. Right. 1.0 came out in January. 1.02 came out later. Anyways, right. The big idea was right. DOD looked at and they, they hired a bunch of smart people at, at Johns Hopkins and Carnegie Mellon to look at the 800-171 standard. And they said, uh, this is a little lopsided, right? The little myopic. We need to add in uh, things to what they what they called open the aperture of the set of controls to make it more holistic. So they recommended 20 new controls to be added into this set of requirements. So um, through the big review of CMMC 1.0 and this whole process, they got rid of those recommendations in order to align to 800-171. And 
it's understandable why they did this. They didn't remove their 20 control recommendations because they don't think that there is a valid basis for adding these controls to 171. They took them out of the rule because if they bake them into the rule, then anytime they want to change those requirements, they have to go through rulemaking again, which takes forever. It's a really dumb place to park controls, no so matter you're how that this expedites that process. So by doing it this way, this allows that process to go smoother and we're not stuck waiting on rulemaking every time we want to improve cybersecurity within the- It would be, it's the same thing that they say where don't put specific procedures into your organization's policies, because then if you have to update how you do your job, you have to route a new policy to get approved and signed by the management team, right? You want those two things to be separate. You want your procedures to be incorporated by reference into your set of policies. Same thing. Okay. You don't want your rules, your government policy to specify specific controls. You want to incorporate a control document by reference, which is why DFARS points to NIST 171 or whatever, right? So okay. as, as that NIST 800-171 variable changes, the contract clauses just call that variable and then that's what you're responsible for implementing. So the problem is, is that even though this is the right way to do it, it's much more efficient to do it. It took time to undo that snafu. And everybody goes, wow, well, you know, it's taking time. And so therefore it must not be happening, which is insane because this is how you would want to have it happen. This is the better way for it to occur. Anyways. So what role do, does pre-draft comments play in this entire process? Right. So we're currently on NIST SP 800-171 Rev 2. And we're getting ready to come out with Rev 3. NIST asked for pre-draft comments, which means before they issue their initial draft of revision three, they said, give us feedback on, a, on how you're using the, the document, um, issues with the structure of the document, uh, recommended changes to the document. Uh, and they listed off a couple of points of interest um, for, you know, hey, when you submit comments to us, maybe maybe comment on these things. Let us know what you think. Uh, effectively being they want some insights into how people are oriented around the standard uh, before they issue the initial draft of the upcoming standard. So when they, when they release the initial draft upcoming, there will be another comment period, right? Sometimes they do initial public draft, final public draft. So we could go... Uh, pre-draft comments, initial draft comments, final draft comments, and then get the final revision of 171. We don't really know what they're going to do uh, as that plays out, but it's effectively just soliciting comments before they release their draft. And this is very interesting because... You, were you able to read all of the, the comments? Or did you, I mean, I know this is yep. your thing, right? This is this is where you oh, yeah. kind of get excited, right? Oh, you yeah. took vacation to do this, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, so. Uh, yeah, the, my, yeah, I love to relax to the soothing sights and sounds of public comments on government regulations. So, uh, and and now that we've got a podcast, we'll get to read uh, YouTube comments, which I'm sure will be uh, way more fun. <laughs> so, all right. So, yeah, we've read through all the comments. We're going through and doing a really detailed breakdown of all the comments. There were 61 organizations that submitted comments most of those comments had multiple points. So I have to get the final numbers when we get done 
uh, with the blog post on this. But uh, imagine that there are many, many, many comments for NIST to have to dig through. And what will almost always happen is they'll post a summary of the feedback that they got. But it's NIST. Um, it's the government, right? These things take some time. So, uh, you know, sure. you have to be patient for that. However, in my reading of the comments, I was very surprised at the harmonization of a lot of the feedback submitted by industry. So two things jumped out immediately about recommendations uh, for changes. One is the most universally despised element of 800-171 is the requirement to use FIPS validated cryptography, end of story. I think almost every person and company and industry organization that submitted a comment said, get rid of it, right? Change it, get rid of it, do something about this problem. Now, do you think that that is because it's an unattainable goal for organizations or is it because the constant moving um, goalposts that is attached to FIPS validated encryption, right? We, we heard Nick talk about uh, during, during the town hall, and this is one of the, the, the hot button topics, is that um, essentially the process that it takes to get the, those uh, mechanisms recertified, FIPS validated, right? It, it's such a long, tedious process and, yeah. and it's it's back it's backed up and it's causing the delays in the program. Is that where many of the gripes are coming from? Or, or yeah, is it no. A lot of the avenues? a lot of the a lot of the critiques of FIPS validation are not about the uh, validity of validating the cryptography modules. Right, the validating crypto is a perfectly reasonable thing to want to do. The problem is is that that process takes so long that it causes this huge constraint on the ability for vendors to get their products validated in a timely manner. And that results in an issue where people either can't find validated crypto uh, options, right? It, it artificially constrains the marketplace, drives up prices, makes it more unattainable. Worse is even if you get FIPS validated crypto modules in your environment, they lag way, way, way behind patching cycles and vulnerability management which is obviously something that we want to do. And this has been a, a stalemate for years at this point. We had Victoria Pilateri, author of NIST ASP 800-171, The Great and Powerful. And she was asked this question directly at CS2 in DC. What do you want people to do when they have to make a trade-off between maintaining their validated crypto modules or updating their patching? I think Windows... Windows is like many cycles behind at this point, uh, where if you were to be up to date on your patches uh, versus being up to date on your uh, your FIPS modules. And right. so what what do you want people to do here? And so a lot of the comments revolve around that. I think personally that the way that they're going to do it, I don't think NIST is going to abandon this requirement. They have been working on cri validated crypto since the, the, uh, the original days of NIST. This has been their baby for decades. They're trying to tie in their validation program to an international ISO encryption standard, right? They have moved on to FIPS 140-3. They're not getting rid of FIPS validation. What they need, what we need to have happen is that the cryptologic, cryptologic module validation program, the CMVP, the program that does the validation of these modules needs 
way, 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 way more resources because you can't have an 18 month validation cycle that costs an arm and a leg, right? At best, uh, be the single constraint for who knows how many companies that want to deal with this requirement, right? They're going to have to figure out a way to do it. And I just don't know if, uh, I don't know where those resources are going to come from. So I don't know what they're going to necessarily do about that. But either way, right? We know that FIPS validation, no one likes it. Whether you agree with the validity of it or not, it's a huge problem. It'll be very interesting to see how they deal with that problem in the upcoming revision or not. However, the other main bucket of harmony uh, that people zoomed in on was the NFO controls. And the NFO controls, for those that aren't aware, all of the requirements in 800-171 are derived from 853, the bigger, you know, the big daddy uh, master catalog of like over a thousand possible controls, right, have all been whittled down to what we now have in 800-171. The whittling down process is known as tailoring. So what they decide to take out versus what they decide to leave in. And all of the requirements that they took out through that process are documented in the back of 800-171, and they categorized what they took out in a couple of different ways. Some of what they took out were federal-specific controls that will never be relevant to anyone ever except for federal agencies. There's like 18 of those. Mm -hmm. Some of the controls were not specifically related to protecting confidentiality of data, and so they classified those as NCO controls. And they said those aren't relevant to this standard. That's a lot of what leads to the narrowness of 800-171. For instance, they said, well, doing backups is an availability thing, not a confidentiality thing. If you do backups, make sure you protect their confidentiality in such and such manner. So what you end up with is no requirement in 800-171 or by extension, CMMC to actually do backups, right. which is ridiculous because this is supposed to be a program that assesses program maturity, right? And if the assumption in the underlying requirements is that you already have a baseline level of maturity, then we're not really doing a maturity model, right? So anyways, along the way of this tailoring down process, there was about 60 some odd controls that they took out and they said, okay, these are so fundamental and self-evident as things that need to be occurring in an environment that we're going to assume that they have been implemented, even though we haven't specified them as requirements. Okay. And they call they called those the NFO controls. And these are things like uh, managing your third-party service providers, uh, having a contingency plan uh, for when a disaster or an incident occurs, uh, all okay. sorts of sort of fundamental things like we talked about that are sort of outside of the scope of a very narrow data protection model are considered to be NFO controls. The most egregious of them all is all of your policy and procedure and documentation is assumed to exist, right, in your environment. So it isn't specified as a requirement, right? So almost everybody that had a specific recommendation about changing 800-171, not comments about how they use it or how it can be 
uh, linked up or synced up with other standards, but about changing the document, recommended that those NFO controls be included in the main set of requirements, which I absolutely agree with. And what kind of, so you you, you touch base on a couple of the, the aspects like, you know, backups or, or whatever it may be, uh, you know, documentation, obviously from the dash one controls from 853. Um, those would be the things that would be once again, injected into the program um, with the inclusion of the NFO controls and, and, and Rev3. What other things do you, do you feel as though like are necessary needs that, that, that have to go in there from at least. It, yeah. So let's say that they don't give us everything that we want. You know, I, I want a million dollars. I'll get a hundred or I'll get a dollar or whatever it may yeah. be. Um, so if you had your choice, like and you were like, well, we can't take all of you on this boat to safety, but we can take some of you. Which ones are you bringing on the boat with you to, to, to uh, well, better? from a practicality perspective, you absolutely have to include policy and procedure requirements I 100% into agree. the main body. And the reason is, is even if you don't drink the Kool-Aid and think that policies and procedures are a useful thing within your organization, the fundamental <clears throat> aspect is they are, even if they're not useful for you on a practical basis, they are useful for your external customers who need assurance about what's going on, right? They are useful for your ability to get insurance coverage. They are useful for DIBCAC running a medium assessment. When somebody asks you, are you doing security? And you say, yes, they go, okay. Like, do, is the only way for me to know that if I ha I just have to show up and watch you do, there's no way for you to document what's going on in your environment, even though you promise that your security program is just the best, right? Like, it is even if it's not a thing that is immediately useful for you, it doesn't mean that it's not useful for your customers and therefore it is inherently valuable, right? I uh, agree. Now, the, 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 the sort of deeper aspect here, right? The big shell game that is occurring is that when you go back to that recommendation about everything flowing through 800-171A and the CMMC assessment guide, right? Those procedures are always structured in the exact same way. Right. The first way, the first step that occurs in the verification of a NIST control is some form of policy check. You'll see this when you say uh, it'll ask you um, that such and such parameter is defined or specified Correct. or documented or something along those lines. Right. It is Correct. written down somewhere. Everything else in those verification procedures that says is controlled is managed, is limited, is mitigated, is a functionality that enforces that policy. Policy. Policy represents documented management decisions, right? So if you don't have the policies, what is your control environment enforcing, right? Typically what happens is your control environment is just enforcing whatever the vendor sold you, right? Whatever the, the, the whiz-bang security company sold you, that's what your control environment does. And you really have no idea if that's what you want it to do, right? You don't yeah. know if that's what, is it working? Is that what you want it to do? Is it producing things that are actually useful to so, you I and mean, the you people you've see, hired? You see the numbers that have popped up as far as to what the actual implementation is. And those are the people that were brave enough to come forward or that volunteered or did whatever needed to be done. How about these organizations? And I, in a past life, obviously, before where I am now, 
um, ran into a majority of these organizations where they were literally starting from nothing. They didn't have any of this stuff in place and they're implementing new technologies. They're implementing yeah. new pop processes and things like that without procedures and, and standards like to drive this. It's insustainable. It's so hard, you're man. Spending I mean, money yeah, on something that's going to be a waste. It's, it's, it's really hard because like we talked about, right? The, the recommendations that come out from joint security alerts never say, have policies, right? Like that is never the first recommendation. The first recommendations are always tuning your functionality, right? And I think that one of the worst trends over the years has been the ability for the term cybersecurity to eat the world. Because back in the day, the term information assurance meant something because you're trying to gain assurance over what's going on. If you go back to 853, the before you get to the controls, like the actual useful part of 853 is the first few chapters of the document. Right. They are very, very clear about the fact that there is a symbiotic relationship between your technical functionality and your management assurance over that functionality. Whether it is for you, knowing that you are getting a return on the money that you're spending on all this security stuff, or whether it is for your external customers who want assurance over what is going on whether that's to give you an insurance policy, give you access to covered data, whatever it happens to be, right? And when we when we abandon the world of assurance and verification for functionality alone, then we just start to float around. And everyone should implement MFA everywhere all the time, period, of course, right? But you can't separate these things from a well-run program and just functionality alone. That sort of narrow technology uh, centric view doesn't actually move the needle. Now, what ends up happening is if you don't specify those policies and procedures as a requirement, people don't think they need to do them. And A, that doesn't really help you establish an overall program, but B, it sets you up to fail because when DibCAC shows up or a CMMC assessor shows up and the first thing that they have to do to verify a requirement is a policy check, then you're going to fail CMMC for something that isn't technically a requirement, right? So right. We, have to, we have to undo this tailoring that NIST has, has, has done to their credit in an effort to make things more streamlined, right? Like, I under, like the reason that they made these assumptions was because they said, well, these companies already exist, their programs already exist, their information systems already exist, they already have the data that needs to be protected. There's already requirements to protect the data that they already have. So clearly they have to have something in place, right? It isn't, it couldn't possibly be the case that every company out there that has a form of data that needs to be protected by regulations that existed before we started looking at this problem have just done nothing at all. And they're just phoning it in. And everything is just completely wide open. We have no idea what's going on, right? That would be absolutely insane. And as it turns out, as you validated through the numbers that, that Nick brought up as only the most recent example, that is exactly what's going on. Nothing yeah, everybody was, was excited for the Delta 20 to drop and no requirements on policies and procedures. They're practically cheering in the streets. And then we get the numbers. And what does it reflect? It's, that dude, I mean, it's just... It, Premature this, party. This gets Way back to, to this. This. This, <laughs> this gets back to, you know, this is a maybe a topic for the next show. But 
the changes between 1.0 and 2.0 are not really changes at all, right? So yeah. the most specific example being this issue around policy and procedure controls as NFO assumptions, right? They are they are expected to be satisfied without being a specified requirement. So in CMMC 1.0, we had maturity processes, right? You had practices and processes. And if right. you look at the criteria for verifying a process and you look at the criteria for verifying policies, they are the same criteria, right? They are the same. Yes. They just had a different name for who knows what crazy bureaucratic turf war reason, right? But fundamentally, when they got rid of the maturity processes, but you still have to have the same things in place to meet the requirements under CMMC 2.0, that means it didn't really go away. It's still there, yet it's not in 171. So you're just setting people up to fail. I mean, it's just the most, the most insane way that this has played out, man. It's just crazy. So your reaction to these comments is everything. Like I just looking at you getting like steamed I, up just... about it, right? <laughs> it's just it's it's just too much. But where we talked about FIPS validated encryption, we talked about the the need to interject NFO and in some sort of way into this entire um, situation. What other things from the comments, if anything, did you see that that either took you back? surprised you, All right. excited you. I know what you're trying to do. Made here. you cry. I know, I know what you're trying to do. Okay. So the, the useful and important things to remember, nobody likes FIPS. Hopefully they do something about it. Uh, NFO controls are problematic and we need to fix it in order to help people not fall on their face when they get an assessment. Second right. to that, right? Um, a significant number of people submitted comments to NIST about NIST 800-171 requirements that were concerning things that have to do with the CMMC program, right? I don't know how many times we've talked about this. It will be the number one concept that I stress to everybody all the time everywhere is that the CMMC program evaluates the requirements in NIST 171. They are different things. So if you have a problem with the CMMC program, and you submit that as a comment to NIST 171, they're not going to be able to do anything with that comment. One of the one of the most interesting comments that I saw was somebody was saying that NIST 171 and NIST 172, which corresponds to CMMC level three, level three yeah. uh, that those two documents don't do enough to include their relationship to CMMC. And that one of the updates should be uh, include language about CMMC in the NIST document. Remember, the NIST document is designed to be used by all agencies and all agency contractors everywhere, not just DOD and DOD's assessment program that we call CMMC. So you can see as you scroll through the comments, there is a still a very common conflation between the requirements and the program that assesses those requirements, even among the people who are sort of tuned in enough to participate in a pre-draft call for comments on 171, which, you know, that's a very small group of people, I think, compared to the number of people that are affected. But I still see that as a probably the most common misconception is that relationship. The worst thing that is in those comments, I mean, that misconception is understandable and it's not the end of the world, right? The worst, the actually objectively bad thing 
is that there are many comments that are submitted that are just companies that sell solutions and technologies whose comments basically boil down to, please include my marketing language in this control so that I can point to the standard and say, we do that, right? Yeah. Which is, uh, listen, it's understandable. People try to influence regulation all the time, regardless of the industry. I get it, right? But just be better, right? Just try harder. You know what I mean? Engineer your solution to the requirements, but these are supposed to be by design and thank God for NIST being vendor neutral for a reason, right? Uh, it is not difficult for you to orient your solution or your service to the vendor neutral requirements that are in the standard and for you to use that in your marketing material, right? Exhibit A, right? We orient all of our services around 800-171A, period. And we challenge everybody to do the same thing and for people to evaluate the value of their services through that lens. Right. Don't, don't lobby NIST. To say, don't build the standard to your solution. Don't, but like, right. even, but here's the thing is if you're a company and you have like a slick encryption solution and you make it easier and I mean, it's totally understandable that you'd be like, let's do more encryption and like bring in the encryption controls and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. I think that's totally fine. The problem is, is when you say XYZ solution does XYZ thing, TM, can you please put the words XYZ solution TM in the control text? And you're like, dude. What are you doing? Yeah. Like, it's, it's just, it's just insane. And I, you know, this is not unusual. It's, it's not unique to this space, but it's just ridiculous. It's like and, name, image, and likeness for NIST. Like, come on, man. This is just, it's yeah. just, it's, it's just insane. But anyways, um, so I would imagine that we'll probably get the initial draft before the holidays, which would be nice. We'll definitely get the comment summary probably in a couple weeks. Hopefully we get the initial draft before the holidays. I would like to see the final draft or the final revision um, shortly after the holidays, definitely by Q1 for sure um, in terms of what's going on. And I think that depending on what events play out with CMMC rulemaking, we'll probably cover that in the next show coming up uh, with the timelines between changes to 171 versus what's going on with CMMC rulemaking. So kind of, and obviously great um dig into the 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 rev three comments um but kind of moving on right and, and trying to jump into a different area for us to discuss right now i particularly so both of us are very uh you more so than i but very um i guess out into the public with you know discussions about cmmc we're very public facing when it comes to uh, opinions or facts or evidence that we bring to try to um, somewhere between increase competency yeah you know? somewhere between town crier and carnival barker depending on yeah. the day and the event right yeah we, we we all like to hop on a soapbox every once in a while right <laughs> um and, and so but that only goes so far because at this point in time, you know, as much as you want to grow your audience, as much as you want to reach as many people as possible to deliver good information, there's quite nothing like the experiences that you have at these in-person industry events. And so over the past month, uh, Summit 7 as a whole, but you and I collectively, I, I didn't get to attend Gold Coast, um, but you were able to attend Navy Gold Coast and the National Cyber Summit. And, and so like, I just kind of, 
I have some takeaways that we've already previously discussed that I'd like to discuss again from National Cyber Summit. But I, I want to hear some of your um, impressions as oh, yeah. to the, where the industry stands based off of your experiences, right? Yeah. So a nice bookend to September was Navy Gold Coast, a big NDIA event that occurs in San Diego every year uh, at the beginning of September and National Cyber Summit. Uh, put on by Cyber Huntsville in Huntsville, Alabama at the end of September. Different sides of the country, um, semi-different audiences, same subject material. So a useful cross-section, uh, you know, very close to each other. And Navy Gold Coast 2022 was like going back in time because the last in-person Gold Coast event was Navy Gold Coast 2019. And because of the pandemic, they didn't do one in 2020, 2021. Sorry for everybody that doesn't live in glorious, beautiful San Diego. Didn't get to come visit. And Gold Coast 2019 was, at the time, the first stop on Katie Arrington's awareness tour, whistle stop train tour, uh, big tent show about raising awareness about CMMC, what it was, the fact that it was coming, there was going to be a rule, blah, 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 right? Katie Arrington started that journey at Gold Coast San Diego 2019. And when so I that was, was... that was three years ago. Yeah, and so I was you, there. So you would think yeah. that the awareness would grow over three years, right. right? So at the time, right, I'm standing there listening to what she's saying. And at the time, I, had, I was working at the NIST MEP program, deeply familiar with 7012 and 800 We were very tuned in to what was going on and everybody that you talked to at gold coast 2019 no idea what 7012 was no idea what 171 was definitely no idea what cmmc was because it was so new didn't know who katie was blah 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 so on and so forth fast forward well, you, to and that's fast, why she's out there making that's why she's know, doing the, the, those yeah, appearances exactly. yeah exactly like the reason awareness. they're talking about cmmc is because nobody knows what 7012 and 171 so that, is Three years down the road, what happens is, is yeah. that people are aware they're on the bus and they're good to go, right? Of of course not. So you fast forward oh, to not. you fast forward to Gold Coast 2022 uh, a couple weeks ago, and right. it was as if we had walked back into 2019. Nobody knew what 7012 was. Nobody really knew what 171 was. They definitely, clearly, weren't aware of what 171A was, and for the most part. Nobody really thinks that CMMC is a thing. Now, the interesting part about Gold Coast, what makes it a unique event, is that it is an event that is put on that places small defense contractors, who, especially Navy contractors, in the same room with acquisition officials from the various Navy acquisition commands, TICOMs, and things like that. So think small machine shops hanging out with Nav War, Nav Sea, Nav Air, Office of Naval Research, and the people from those organizations who directly deal with acquisitions. So it's a very cool mashup of what's going on in the industry. And talking to both groups of people, the awareness level of what's going on with the CMMC program, very, very low. And the, the part that jumped out to me the most about this is that at the same time, that Gold Coast was going on the same day that Gold Coast was going on. There was an event in DC known as the Billington Cybersecurity Summit. It's a wonderful event. It's been going on for 13 years. It's huge. Lots of folks from all over the federal security space were there. And ironically, while everybody is at 
Gold Coast, the acquisition officials from the TICOMs and the people who are going to be subject to CMMC because they are subject to DFAR 712 are in San Diego. And the folks from DOD like John Sherman, DOD CIO, Dave McEwen, DOD CISO, uh, Dr. Kelly Fletcher, Deputy DOD CIO, uh, Stacey Boschjanik, right? CMMC PMO, now in charge of both the DIBCS program and the CMMC PMO, are not in San Diego. They are in DC talking to other federal cybersecurity people about what's coming around the corner. And we're out in San Diego and nobody knows what's coming around the corner. I mean, it was so, it was such a distinct split in terms of what was going on. It was the, it was probably one of the clearest left-hand versus right-hand examples that I have seen in recent memory. So if you would say that you were cruising through the uh, expo center at, at Navy Gold Coast, right? And going to vendor and vendor exhibits, did you see a lot of organizations that were advertising CMMC services? Oh man, this is, so this is also no, another crazy comparison is that, you know, I was on a panel, which was fine. It was, you know, I think put out a lot of good information, although we got parked in the afternoon of the last day. So it probably wasn't quite as effective. Nobody was paying it, attention. Probably could. It's also San Diego, right? So, I mean, people right. want to go hang out. Um, so it wasn't quite as effective as it could have been, but it was still worthwhile. Um, and when you would go from the, uh, the areas where the acquisition officials were hanging out, the areas where the small businesses were hanging out, and then the vendor floor, right? Very different vibes in each one. But the vendor floor is full of companies that have CMMC all over their vendor booths and their banners and everything. So, right, which is but, what you would well, expect at like well, a. a well, not even passing judgment on the quality of the services and the products that they're offering, there's clearly something going wrong here because everybody who is trying to sell you something uh, has CMMC on their banner. You go talk to people who are going to be subject to CMMC. Nobody what knows what's happening. Say? You go to Billington Cybersecurity Summit and it's all anybody's talking about. So uh, one of these things is not like the others and it's the very, very, very low level of awareness now on on the subject of the vendors right right um everybody is slapping cmmc on their vendor booth period uh, okay and this is something that we saw at national cyber summit something we saw at gold coast probably not going to be a surprise to anybody any company out there that is adjacent to security in any way is throwing cmmc on their marketing material regardless of whether they actually understand what that means or not and we saw this talking to a few folks that we seem did. to have gotten new banners recently that suddenly involve shepherding people through CMMC and talking to them, they'd say, yeah, you know, we're getting into the CMMC thing and asking them the same questions that we would encourage any person shopping for services to ask. Do you know about 171A? Do you know about how this works? Do you know how to calculate a score? And they would almost always go, what? Like, what are you talking what, about? What are you talking about? I'm only the sale. I heard on multiple occasions, I'm only the salesperson, which again is not a cop out, right? Like I'm not the compliance right, guy. Right. I'm, I'm only the person that's here. I'm the BD guy, right? And so there has to be some kind of concentrated effort for you, even as the BD guy, the sales guy, the compliance guy, that you have some sort of talkability uh, when it comes to the topic, especially if you're going to plaster it all over your banner and you're going to go and spend 
countless thousands of dollars to sponsor or to have a spot at a, you know some sort of cybersecurity industry it's, event. You know the, the 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 dismaying part about it, right? Is this is you're not gonna. It's not a secret, right? Anybody that understands no. what's going on with CMMC can clearly tell that it's happening, and. But it's Obviously. not the first time either. Well, like, but, that's the other thing too, right? History is repeating. We're in the we we say this all the time. We're in a simulation, bro, and we're <laughs> at this we're well, at this loop, right? Like it's, somebody it's forgot simulation. to play. It's a simulation. It's Groundhog Day. It's either one. The the problem is is that every time we go to an event, we see more and more companies that are claiming that they're able to help people with CMMC. Maybe they can. Maybe they can't. The questions that you ask to validate whether they can help you or not are the same, whether you're talking to us, you're talking to a competitor, you're talking to a consultant, doesn't matter. The questions are always the same. It's always what's going on around their orientation to 171. The, the concerning part is most companies that are going to be wrestling with CMMC are under-resourced. And as a result, if they're going to try and play in this changing world of now needing to be this high to ride the ride with DOD, they're going to have to make an investment that they can probably only make once, right? Like agree. you're climbing without a rope here because if you spend $150,000 and it doesn't get you across the finish line, that might be a wrap for a lot of people. So agree. Uh, in June, Stacey Boschanek was on a webinar and I, I have this quote, we'll, we'll make sure we have the link to it, but she was asked during the webinar, what is the DOD going to do about companies that make bad investments and get ripped off or get sold something that is not sufficient for them to pass their, their requirement in sharp contrast to many of the marketing claims that are out there about what's going on. What, what are you going to do DOD about people in the ecosystem getting ripped off? And she said... She's saying you're telling me that she was at an event asked while yes. on stage if DOD has any intentions of yes. the basically yeah. the context of the question was there's a lot of people out just like we we're saying there's a lot of people out there making a lot of outlandish claims about right. how much they can do to help people with CMMC how fast they can do it how cheap they can do it how comprehensive their solution is according to the requirements and that's clearly not true in a lot of cases so. What is DOD going to do about people who get sold a bad bill of goods? About and what did she say? She said, quote, if you've made a bad investment and have gotten bad advice, there's not much that we, the DOD, can do. We can't make you whole. We can't pay you or cover your costs. That's kind of one of those business decisions that you have to make. You need to be able to look at the assessment guides and the documentation that we put out. Effectively, if you make the wrong decision and you partner with the wrong company and you make that investment and you end up not making it through the gauntlet of CMMC, there's nothing that the DOD is going to do to help you. That's insane. I, I mean, mean, it's not insane. It, I, you wouldn't expect it. Like, you know, I, I run a business, right? I go out and I make a deal with some sort of supplier and I get a supplier and I'm supposed to get, I don't know, some kind of pristine crab or shrimp or, or some sort of, you know, seafood, right? And then they deliver. Is this because you're? Is this because you're? You're from Maryland. I, I mean, yeah. Like I, I just want <laughs> to all your metaphors. Speak to the things I know, right? Crab, food, and seafood. <laughs> like, right? Like, let's just let's just stick to the things that we're we're good at here. Um, and, and so, like, it, it's basically me making that agreement with some sort of supplier, and then reaching out to the the you know the the, the farmers association because 
that what I received wasn't what it was supposed to be or reaching out to natural resources yeah. because they sold me lobster or, and I was supposed to get King crab or whatever it may be. Right. It, but that that's for me, the, 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 the true line of delineation here comes in to as a business owner, you hold some sort of responsibility to perform due diligence is a key word that we like to use, right? Which basically you're going to go through and evaluate these people. The problem that we run into, and it, it kind of dates back to the you talking to people on the floor at National Cyber Summit and Gold Coast and, and, and then being like CMMC, what? They right, don't it's... know. And so if you right. slap a banner, if you mm-hmm. slap a, a badge on your banner, you slap some kind of icon on your banner, they're like, thank goodness somebody's here to help. Right. And unfortunately, people are preying on that, and that is not the way the thing should yeah, be. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a recipe for a bad time, man. And the DoD, you know, I think maybe they, don't, they didn't, didn't intend for it to be that distinctive of a quote, but it really jumped out to me as you go around to these industry events where you're like, listen, man. If you make the wrong partnership decision, then you're going to get hammered and you probably can only make that mistake once before you got to figure out something else to do. But that that's the problem, right? The easy solution, though, is that the way that you navigate that that ecosystem of people making claims, because we make claims about how much we can help people, just like unscrupulous vendors might make claims as well. How can you differentiate? between a company like ours or some of our competitors who are also awesome versus some people out there who are just trying to make a buck and they don't care what happens to your company. The same questions that are in 800-171A are the universal way that you would be evaluating anyone's claims, yours, mine, Summit 7's, anybody else. Even, and this is something that drives me up the wall, when the DOD puts out information about services that they have, cybersecurity as a service, protective DNS, the DIBCS program, all these wonderful tools that they put out for free or for a heavily subsidized price to try to facilitate security, right? They're trying Mm -hmm. all these efforts and all these programs to provide services to their contractors to help with their security. They don't orient those services to 171A, even though they're the DOD's own requirements. If I was a company and I was selling you better DNS, right? I'm like, hey, DNS is important. The inside joke is that the problem is always DNS, right? It's a main vector for all kinds of threats and issues. It's really worth the time to try to gain some leverage over it because it really helps. You go, okay, um, how does how do I know what's going on? How do I know what you do? How do I know anything that's happening? Can you specifically help me facilitate my compliance requirements as a, a sort of first principle? And they'd go, yeah. That's it. D- do you have any assurance that yeah. that's true? How do you know that that's true? You know that something is true by walking through those questions. And for the most part, this gets even easier because most of the companies that don't know what's going on and they're just sort of out there advertising CMMC will immediately indicate to you that they don't even know what 171A is. So if you talk to somebody and they go, oh yeah, we've got our shared responsibility matrix and we've broken everything down and blah, blah, blah. Immediately, you can start to separate the good players from the bad players. But if you just guess or you try to differentiate on price or you try to shop for this in the way that you would shop for anything else, Stacy's not coming to help. 
right? Like that's it. It's a, it's a huge problem. For me, I think the easy indicator, and I don't know if you agree, but walking throughout the showroom at National Cyber Summit, the thing that stood out the most kind of touches back onto your point that if you looked at the, what was out there, like the brochures or or the, you know, the, the material that they have on the solution that they're providing, if you were to look at that, like there was a clear indicator that this company is about you know what we like to call a good egg right and then uh, there was very few and far between of those but they do exist it's just the problem is now and you were picking through a forest of maybe 10 trees and now it's a forest of thousands oh and it's it's increasing it's increasing exponentially right i'm sure that by the time especially as the and we'll talk about this on the next show as the rulemaking clamor starts to increase and the volume starts to come back up especially after the holidays Every sure. booth on every vendor floor will say, yeah, we do that. And so all of a sudden, how are you going to be able to navigate your way through that? Now, what I'll say about speaking with companies that need to comply with DFARS, implement 171 and get assessed via CMMC, for the most part, I would say the vast majority of companies are not what I would consider to be early adopters, right? That are already on the books, they're already working with service providers, they're already well on their way, they've already gone through DIBCAC assessments for better or worse. All of that is sort of like the initial tail of mm-hmm. the ecosystem. The vast majority right. of the ecosystem is on the outside looking in. And speaking with people at these events, I generally think that they fall into two categories. There are people who think that CMMC is real, and there are people who think that CMMC is not real, that it's somehow right. going to go away. Either way, regardless of which category they fall into, they all say the same thing. They all say, if CMMC or when CMMC shows up in my contracts, then I'll do it, right? Because I'm not going to do anything until it's in my contracts. And that is really the crux of the problem overall, is that that is a perfectly rational thing to say for literally every other contract clause ever, except for this one, because the CMMC clause tells you to go get a CMMC certification for a set of requirements that were already prescribed for you to be implemented in a previous requirement. Correct. It's only the validation clause. So nobody's going to look to get validated until they have to, right? And then at that point, it's too late. And we, we talk about this all the time, the, the amount of providers that are capable of, of giving what these organizations need is I mean, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely a constraint. I mean, a lot of times what you'll see is people will say, there's not enough assessors. There's not enough assessors. There's not, the constraint is on the assessors and that is a problem. We need more assessors. We'll always need more assessors, but the, that is, that is based on the premise that everybody is ready for an assessment, which if you look at DIBCAC's numbers, they are clearly not ready for an assessment. Mm -hmm. The real constraint is on the implementers. And for the, for the majority of companies out there that won't be able to use like an easy button silver bullet solution because they're not a cloud native small company or something like that, um, if they wait, right? This is the real confusing part. If they wait for the CMMC clause to show up to get started on implementing the requirements in 171, then they suddenly realize that they're six to 24 months behind schedule. Right, right. The, the, the assumption when the program 
comes out and that you get the clause to say, go get the assessment, or you get a prime that says, go get the assessment now, we don't care if you have the clause, is that you have already implemented the requirements, not I need two years to get ready for my assessment. And so fundamentally, right, listen, business is about taking risk. That's at, at its most fundamental level. So in order to make an informed risk, you have to be aware of the details of what's going on. Do you, by saying I'm waiting on the CMMC clause to get the CMMC cert or to start implementing the requirements that will be certified, do you know that your customer dynamic or whatever particular environment that you're in will tolerate you not being ready for two years or 18 months or 12 months? And the shorter that window is, are you willing to bet that you won't have to spend a corresponding amount of money to go faster because a lot of companies that we talk to, their customers don't wanna wait, right? They're very impatient. They'll move on to the person, the first person that is ready, right? They're not in a position to have a long uh, on-ramp into this environment. And so they're getting set up in a situation where they don't wanna start implementing until the requirement to get assessed shows up and the conflation between the assessment program and the requirements to be implemented allows people to rationalize delay and that's going to cause a lot of problems and so rationalizing the delay it also comes with the acceptance that you constantly hear rumblings of there may be some sort of phased rollout which then automatically in the brain implants the fact that oh i got more time oh i have more time and actually what you're just getting is a, a, a reprise or, or or some sort of yeah. like hey you just got saved by the fact that you do have more time because the amount of time that you would have between that now and the time that maybe rulemaking, CMMC rulemaking finalizes isn't nearly enough time. I mean, it is less than, this is crazy. I just thought about this. If we stick to the timeline, which I, all signs point to yes, right? If we stick to the timeline, we're five months away from a rule. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So this is the thing, and we'll, I think we'll dive into this into the next episode is like these key sure. differences between 1.0 and 2.0 and the impact that the rule will have. But just like getting rid of maturity processes in 1.0 didn't really get rid of them because you need the same material to verify the requirements that are still around, right? Mm -hmm. The phased rollout, there will be a phased rollout, right? Uh, they've said multiple times that the phased rollout will probably be 2023 to 2026. Uh, not all that far away from the original estimate of CMC 1.0 being done by the end of 2025. Honestly, a slip of 12 months, give or take, pretty pretty good for uh, for government work. However, that is the rollout of the clause in contracts by DOD into contracts for their direct contractors, right? right? That does not, just like we talked about earlier, have anything to do with the prime contractors requiring their suppliers to go get the cert as soon as possible. And there is nothing that the DOD can can do to prevent that dynamic from playing out. So, And do you think any of these major prime contractors are just sitting around like, well, we'll see when it comes in our contract? We've, or seen, we've seen this documentation from large primes and their supply chain departments where they have said their internal guidance is we can't tell if or when you might receive CUI for a program that we're bidding on that we won't take award of for a year. 
So as a result, you need to go get CMMC level 2.0 now so that when the program gets awarded to us, we can immediately send you whatever we need to send you, right? We don't know if we're going to have to send you CUI or not. And that causes, from the other perspective, small companies to say, these these primes are asking me to get level two and they can't tell me if they have CUI or not, right? If you put on the other set of shoes, it makes perfect sense why they're asking you. They can't wait until they get a direct award from the government for you to then take 12 to 18 months to get ready. I've seen examples of, and this is, you know, like obviously one of those like, hey, this is one of those stories, but um, I've seen examples of deliverables in the contract or communication coming from the prime on the contract to the sub that says that we expect you to flow this down without remorse remorse that was the word remorse remorse flow this down without remorse basically saying that our supply chain needs to meet these standards and you need to do it and you need to flow it down without any remorse whatsoever it's, uh, you know, understanding the, the saga of CMMC, there's just so many different lenses that you can use to evaluate what's happening, right? The lens of, from the perspective of the government or from the perspective of the mega primes or from the perspective of small businesses or the perspective of the NIST folks who are writing the requirements. Like there's just so many different, there's a myriad way of looking at how all this plays out, but um. Yeah, man. Just in terms of the dynamic, I think if you just if you were to just take that quick anecdotal sample of Gold Coast National Cyber Summit, both great events, full of great people, right? The overall level of understanding about what's going on extremely low. You compare that with what we saw with the numbers from Nick Del Rosso and Dibcac from the AB Town Hall. The numbers clearly indicate that. Understanding is extremely low. Implementation is extremely low. You compare that with the, the, the cyber advisory that just came out that's making the same recommendations that they've been making for years, huge overlap with the requirements, right? And it's obvious that implementation is still extremely low. And so I think just to maybe start to wrap up here, <clears throat> we had a story that came out about a GAO report that was released about the NNSA. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, the uh, not the NSA, the NNSA, the National Nuclear Safety or Security Administration. Let me make sure I get this right. I have it uh, effectively, the National Nuclear Security Administration. So effectively, the organization that runs all of the national labs. So Livermore National Lab, Sandia National Lab, places like that. Um, really great organization, doing a lot of cool work the GAO team came in to evaluate their overall security programs because they have federal requirements. And what, and, did, that rep- what did that produce? What did they say? Uh, so what came out was the evaluation of the actual programs at the various lab sites was pretty good. Uh, they are uh, doing pretty much everything they need to do. There's room for improvement, not, to, not unexpected, but everything is kind of humming along. The second mm-hmm. half of the report talks about their management of their supply chain and their visibility into and their assurance over their supply chain's uh, security requirements, right? And all of that was basically abysmal, right? They have very little oversight. They have almost no assurance. uh, They have very little control 
over what's going on over the supply chain, which should okay. be concerning for everybody. This is not a unique story at this point, right? This no, isn't DOD. This isn't the DIB. This isn't any of that. It's a different agency, different supply chain, same requirements, same problem, right? And uh, it's, it's like the game of telephone, right? Like at the prime, right where the, the message originates, we get it crystal clear. All the words are right and everything. But yeah. by the time we get down to the tertiary subcontractor, the requirements have dwindled. The security yeah. protections have dwindled and, and things just turn I mean, much this is, more negative than needed. We say this all the time, right? The, the issues that are being exposed by CMMC have caused people to blame CMMC for exposing them, right? Right. And because CMMC is making so much noise in the DOD space, people think that it is unique to the DOD space when the dynamics of poor supply chain visibility, bad supply chain security, and the majority of supply chain elements being small under-resourced businesses is a universal characteristic of all supply chains, it seems like, then if you take off your DOD hat and you put on your DHS hat or you put on your NNSA hat, you're going to find the same problems that you found in the DOD space. So all of the pain points, all of the arguments against verification, all of the issues that have been exposed by CMMC, you can take those and you can port them directly to any other sector in the federal space, any other supply chain that's directly downstream from a federal agency. It's always going to be the same characteristics. Now, and what do you see is, is going to come from the results of the report? What, what, what do you think the, well, the action the, items the, are? The most interesting part about that report was that the GAO auditors were shown a draft memo that the NNSA has, they're sitting on it, that effectively says um, all of our contractors need to go get a CMMC level two certification within 24 months of the issuance of this memo. And they're sitting on that memo waiting for the CMMC rule to finalize and come out. And, and that is, bam. bam, as soon as the DOD's rule for the DOD's assessment program for the DOD's supply chain comes out, another right. agency is saying, thanks for doing all the hard work, DOD. Hey, all of our suppliers, go use that program because it's the same set of requirements that you're getting verified against. So let me quote you for a second. The, the canary in the coal mine is finally, yeah. you know, like it's come to fruition, right? Because well, I, as we've said many, many times before, the DOD has been a guinea pig for the development of a program that hasn't been seen anywhere else, right? And so now what we're at is that people are like, thanks for going through all those heartaches yeah. with raising this kid. I'll take it from here now that they're 18, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for changing the diapers. Now they're like, right. now they're like a cool, like big kid and we're going to go to the zoo, right? It's like so, the dad. I love being a dad, but you yeah. never change a diaper. Like, you know what I mean? Like that is, yeah, there's a lot, there's probably a lot to unpack in that metaphor, but it's, if it were not for this GAO report, right? If you were to tell somebody that other agencies are looking at CMMC, they'd go, you're crazy. You're just trying to sell, sell people on CMMC FUD, right? So this, this right. report is just very, it's, it's actually a great read. A lot of GAO reports are very well written. They're very well structured. Um, but it is a, a, a really interesting view into how much bigger this problem is and how much more relevant it is to other folks and other supply chains. Because how many other agencies are sitting on a memo just like the NNSA because their supply chain has the same set of requirements in 800-171. It's the minimum federal standard. 
and they know that their supply chain isn't compliant and they don't have any assurance over what's going on. And so they'll say, as soon as it comes out, thanks for uh, implementing the program, DOD. Everybody go get a CMMC certification, right? I mean, or it's just, they could not learn from history and they're going to be like, well, we're going to start off with self-attestation. Man, okay. So right we'll right. have to talk about this on the next show. We'll talk about CMMC 1.0 versus 2.0. We'll talk about the alleged changes between the two and why they're not really going on. We'll talk about CMMC rulemaking updates. Uh, sure. and I think we can probably talk about uh, what the DHS's uh, supposed plan is for how they're handling uh, their their supply chain assurance challenges in comparison to DOD. And we'll probably, it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I think we'll probably wrap up uh, our judgment of whether we think that awareness has been raised because in September, awareness was still extremely low. Maybe it'll be different but, at the end of October. But now we have a whole month dedicated to it. Now we have we'll a whole month. Up, now there's we'll a podcast. the cybersecurity awareness tree. Yeah, maybe the podcast is the, the, the straw that broke the back and that'll Dude, awareness. I, I feel like that we could do this all day. Um, I, I like rifting back and forth with you and I, I like going and, and actually being able to to pick at you, kind of kind of get you irritated and get you worked up yeah, so that we can start digging into some stuff. But um, you know, like obviously we, we talked about cybersecurity awareness month and, and like, we, we definitely need to, um, you know, put a cap on this episode so that we can start working on the next one. Um, but a couple things to point out, like a, a lot of the things that we discovered here is that there is still a clear area where organizations and the people that are responsible for fulfilling or satisfying these requirements still don't really know what's going on. And so Summit 7, where we both work, right, um, has put together a nice blog series, uh, Seven Steps to the CMMC Compliance. And it's going to cap with a presentation of a webinar featuring Summit 7's own Sam Stiles, Daniel Acreage, and Joy Beeland, who obviously we, we spoke about a lot um, during this uh, podcast episode. And that takes place on October the 19th, right, Jacob? I believe that's right. Yep. We'll I'm have the link that. to we'll have the link to the webinar uh, in the notes, and then if people are listening to this after the webinar occurred, we'll have those notes updated to uh, the recording, so people can check it out. And then, obviously, you know, without any, you know, if there's no other quarrels with us, with calling us in, you know, um, it, it's been great, man. I, I can't tell you how much fun this is is going to be, and, and and I can't wait to see where this evolves to. And I I hope just people find value in the fact that uh, we've just started recording our ranting and raving rather than I, doing it. Uh, rather I can't than just believe doing it throughout the day. So I can't believe they gave us unsupervised space on microphones together. We'll, we'll but see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how, how long, we'll see how long that leash goes. <laughs> yeah, man. So uh, all right. So yeah. we don't have an official like cool sign off thing. So we'll leave it up to um to to producer Dustin to figure out a way to. Uh, yeah. make a cool edit and have us go and have us leave.